So, tonight we are indeed thinking about Daniel in the lion's den. Or, as one writer, Charles Swindle, puts it, the lions in Daniel's den. So let's explore it together, shall we? In recent weeks, the Tory politician Jacob Rees-Mogg attracted a lot of comment for some of his stances on Catholic teaching, on abortion and other such issues. And whether or not you agree with the extent of his stands or perhaps some of his perhaps less palatable comments on other issues, the point thrown up by this, I think, is the right of a serving minister to disagree with the law of the land and make clear that his own principles lie in a different direction. On another side of the political divide, we may remember Tim Farron being hounded a bit over faith-based issues and opinions. Although neither of these got thrown to any literal lions, though whether tabloid journalists are much less scary is debatable, and while neither of them are as attractive a character as Daniel, they were trying to do right by their faith. Daniel, doing right by his faith, meets his test with resolve, trust in God, and dignity. But before we look at him, what about the jealousy of those who accuse him? Daniel has survived a regime change and a change of empires. Having prophesied the fall of Babylon, Daniel sees it subsuming into the Persian Empire and not only survives, but as we've heard, becomes a regional governor. But his enemies are anxious to trip up this reprobate from a conquered slave race who threatens their job security before he's placed over their provinces too. And so, what do they show us? They're a powerful example of something the Bible gives us many examples of, and that's jealousy. And we see so many paradigms of this, don't we? Cain, Joseph's brothers, the elder brother in the prodigal son story. And in some of these cases, the outcome was intensely destructive. Not for nothing did Shakespeare in Othello call jealousy a green-eyed monster. In a 2014 article, Psychology Today magazine said this, when we're in the grips of envy, we're as the captain of a ship who navigates the seas, not by the heavenly stars, but by the distorted lens of his own magnifying glass. The ship turns in every direction and ends up being taken by rock, reef or storm. Thus Cain kills Abel, thus the elder brother feeling overlooked, won't welcome back the prodigal, and thus Daniel's enemies seek his life. In his book, The Positive Power of Negative Emotions, Dr. Tim Lomas argues that we can allow envy to either be vicious and destructive or emulative. Either it can lead us to pull down or seek to destroy the person we're jealous of, or to ask, actually, is there something here that I could do with taking on board, doing or being? And while we know that there is a balance here about not finding your self-esteem in comparison with others, Daniel's enemies could have seen his work ethic, his integrity, and they could have let his example show them where all that came from. The relationship with God that Daniel honours and prioritises so much but instead they seek his life but the price of their jealousy the price of their envy 
will not be his destruction, but theirs. And so as we secondly continue the power, uh, consider the power of Daniel's stand, Darius has been conned into signing this strange 30-day law to pray to no one but the king. Whether he's given way to some sort of ego massage or maybe been told, as one commentary thinks, that it's a sensible way of binding together a kingdom that's just undergone a regime change, who knows. The major thing that leaps out at us, though, as Daniel's enemies plot to snare him, is where they know that they can get him. They know that they can't attack his work ethic or his honesty. As the message version puts it, they looked for some kind of skeleton in his cupboard, some kind of scandal in his life, but found nothing. Daniel, the man of the true God, is a man of honor, which, of course, is a challenge to all of us. They also know that Daniel will be true to his faith, come what may. When I was a teenager at Notre Dame school, my first form room was an RE classroom, and on the wall was a poster that said these words on the slide behind us. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Even with my then very nominal teenage Catholicism, it used to make me stop and think sometimes. And so, do people see that God matters to us? Daniel's accusers certainly knew that God was precious to him. They'd seen it over time. As far back as chapter 1, if you remember a few weeks back, we see Daniel making a small step of obedience, refusing the king's royal food, living on vegetables. Only two, at the end of this test, be more healthy than those who'd feasted at the king's table. This test of food didn't take place so that he could be a poster boy for Jamie Oliver's vegan cookbook. There are points here such as the food may have been offered to idols, possibly mixed with blood, almost certainly containing foods that are unclean to Jews. There's no sense that that refusal put Daniel in any danger. But these small steps of his were, even unconsciously, I think, a preparation for the test of the lion's den to come. A resolution that though Daniel may be in Babylon, Babylon will not be in Daniel. That though a human king has given him office, it's really God who gives all things and places us where he will. By a small step of obedience when the pressure isn't on him, Daniel prepares himself for the test of the lion's den. His faith, then, isn't just crisis-centred. It doesn't just matter when he needs help or healing. His relationship with God is deeper and stronger than that. And it's adversity like this that exposes how much we trust God. And so he does what he knows is right to do. He still prays. One commentator says this, there is no doubt that what kept Daniel when his trial came was this rigid, uninterrupted habit of prayer. He disciplined himself to it day by day for years and at the hour of crisis, the very momentum of the custom would have been enough to keep him faithful to it even if there had been at that moment no living inspirational incentive. 
And while we know, of course, that there has to be much more to prayer than just routine, isn't there so much to be said for the power of a devotional habit to sustain us? And what do we see him praying for here? Different translations use different words. Favor, mercy, help, supplication. No doubt he's praying for strength, not just for himself, but for his fellow believers. We also see that he was thanking and praising God because he knows two things here, that God is his strength and also that God's will is sovereign over this king's idolatry. Now, consider, if you will, for a moment, if you were about to be thrown to lions, whether you would be able to express thankfulness and joy in that moment. They're waiting for you with their jaws slavering and whatever burger relish goes with human flesh, I don't know. But like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego before him, who faced the test of the furnace with defiance, who said, we believe that God is going to deliver us, but if not, if God's plan is different from what I banked on it being, he's still God. Daniel is making sure that he faces this in God's strength, with the joy of God in him, and hopefully with the surety that God will deliver him. But in any case... If he is going to be martyred this night, being true to God will still be the thing that matters most to him. And so he's arrested, taken to the lion's den. The king has made an effort to save him, but he's been well and truly outwitted on this. Daniel goes, no doubt, with all the dignity he can muster. He sees perhaps his enemies gloating. His friends terrified for him. And the king, haunted, guilt-stricken, voicing a hope that Daniel's God will deliver him in exchange for his loyalty. Some versions phrase this more definitely, giving him a more definite belief that Daniel will be saved. The message version puts it like this. Your God, who you serve so loyally, is going to get you out of this. And why not? The king would have heard the stories and there would have been people around who remembered the miracle of the furnace, the writing on the wall. This is the missional quality of God's people in the Old Testament that throughout, God is using his people to demonstrate his reality and power to those outside the Israelite camp. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Jonah, the Ark of God in the Philistine temple, the healing of Naaman the Syrian, to name but a few. God is always revealing his power to those around Israel, just as he is now through Daniel, and just as today he wants to do through us too. The fact that Daniel is facing lions here, as well as being because they were local, has a symbolic and spiritual importance. Like the Nile, the Egyptian sacred river of life attacked by the plagues of Exodus, like the Ninevites who have a fish god called Dagon, and so get Jonah, the prophet of the true God, emerging from the mouth of a fish to speak to them. The lion is important in this culture. In many cultures, it's a symbol of strength. Here, an ancient Persian symbol which survived into modern Iran shows the lion and the sun. 
Ancient Eastern kings often had images painted or carved of themselves fighting lions, whether or not they'd ever actually been near one. A sort of fake news selfie to boost the royal ego. So again, God here overcomes something that's either an example of false religion or a false source of merely worldly strength with his truth. Later in the letters of Peter, we may remember, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And at times we see God, don't we, use images that turn this on its head to show that in the end, perhaps, if we can excuse a pun, he's the bigger and badder lion than all these negative references. Jesus, in Revelation, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who, by his death and resurrection, has triumphed over all. No doubt when C.S. Lewis creates Aslan, it's this that he's thinking of. Likewise in Amos, God, too, roars like a lion. We may remember, um, a couple of weeks back, some of the ways that Jonathan spoke to us about the ways that our society tries to shut out Christianity. Voices that seek to uh, shake our certainty, our hope, our joy, our purpose, our moral strength in God. May we know then that in the end, though those voices roar like maybe the lions are roaring here, the lion that roars loudest will be our God, the Lion of Judah, and that his voice alone, out of this world's many voices, is good and does have power. The only voice that's calling all those who will listen out of the wrath to which all of this world's evil and ungodliness will be subject. As Joel 3.16 tells us, the Lord will roar from Zion, thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people. And so Daniel's placed in this den, the place which is meant to be his tomb, from which he, if his enemies prevail, will not emerge alive. And we're told very explicitly that he's sealed in with a stone. This detail like the ceiling of the tomb at the burial of Christ, is recorded, no doubt, to leave no room for any possibility or accusation of fraud in the miraculous events that are about to follow. We see that the king did not sleep that night. I wonder if anyone else did. Daniel might have done. He's been sealed into the lion's den Hopeful, perhaps, but still fearful. Only to find that the situation is turning around. The lions, as Charles Swindle says, are indeed in his den now because God has given him dominion. Did Daniel's enemies sleep as they anxiously waited for confirmation of their rival's death? Did his friends keep a prayer vigil contending for him? We see that the king heads down to the den as soon as dawn breaks, desperate to see if he survived. Daniel, he calls, has your God kept you safe? As we thirdly and finally consider uh, Daniel's vindication and the king's response, the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. He's alive, he's untouched, he's gloriously vindicated, his trust in God is repaid. The king turns on Daniel's accusers who promptly meet a very different fate. 
along with their families, of course, as well. The ferocity of the lions in this moment is a very telling contrast, designed again, no doubt, to eliminate any suggestion that Daniel survived because the lions just weren't very hungry that night. And in the face of Daniel's deliverance, Darius does the only thing he can do. He acts on his convictions about Daniel's God and proclaims him throughout the kingdom. So tonight then, looking at where all this leads us, would our faith not be crisis-centred? Would we not just pray when we're scared or hurt or in trouble, as important as God's healing is to us in those times? Or have faith that only works when circumstances turn out how we want? But would a regular walk with God be our strength? Would we let small steps of faith, obedience and consecration prepare us for bigger ones? Would we pray for those in public life, especially politicians who (coughs) seek to... um, seek to honour God in what they do, whatever their faults and irrespective of whether we sympathise with them politically? Would we have people in our lives who will pray with us through our tests of faith, obedience, ethics, and give us wisdom that through our obedience, God can do what he wants to do and bless us with peace, assurance and honour and reveal himself to others as he did through Daniel and through some of those Old Testament examples we mentioned earlier. Will we likewise commit to pray for and with others? Finally, like Darius, if you can't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, you've seen God maybe be real to someone as Darius saw him be real to Daniel. You know that maybe there's got to be something behind all this liturgy and music. Would you, in the end, do what Daniel did and reach out, what Darius did, sorry, and reach out and embrace the truth of who God is? People here will be delighted to help you on that road. I'm closing very quickly tonight then with the message translation of the king's final proclamation. I decree that Daniel's God shall be worshipped and feared in all parts of my kingdom. He is the living God, world without end. His kingdom never falls. His rule continues eternally. He is a saviour and rescuer. He performs astonishing miracles in heaven and earth. That is Daniel's God and that is our God too. And so, Lord God, strengthen and equip us as you strengthened and equipped Daniel to stand on your word, to take strength in a regular walk with you, that you may give us peace, assurance, and honour as you desire the reality of your truth, and that through us you will reveal yourself to others. Amen.